Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to John chapter 1 as we continue our study through the Gospel of John. Our text this morning will be verses 14 through 18. We'll get there in just a moment. One day in college, a good friend of mine came to me excited. He said, I visited this little Presbyterian church last Sunday and I heard an incredible preacher and I want you to come with me next week to hear him. And uh, both of us were preparing to be preachers and we love to hear good preaching. And so uh, the next Sunday I went with him. And it's interesting out of all of the sermons that I heard in college, uh, for some reason this was always stuck with me. I've thought about it many, many different times. There's a few reasons for that. The sermon itself was great and the content was great, but there was something at the end that I think is the reason it stuck in my mind. It was a sermon on the holiness of God. And I had not thought that much about the holiness of God at that point. And I really remember, and this is really what a sermon in some ways is supposed to do. I remember being really moved by something that I hadn't seen before, that God was unlike any other and God was holy. It came to the end of the sermon that was a really moving and touching sermon, and it was time for the application. And I think back now at all of the applications you could give to a sermon on the holiness of God. And there's so many applications to that, but here's the one he chose, and I remember this well. He was making a point that holiness is not just something about God. It really is part of who God is. And there is nothing else that is holy like God is holy. And holy is more than just a statement about him. It, it's, it's more of a name of God. And if holiness is a name of God, we should only refer, we should only use that word to refer to God. And therefore, here's his big point of application. We should no longer say, holy cow. That was the application for the sermon on the holiness of God. I remember that because I thought that was so strange and I can't say that I have never said holy cow or holy smoke since then. And I don't know if that's right or not. I'm, I'm not going to be uh, cynical towards it because there may be something really there. But I think the bigger point he was trying to make is an important one. There are these words throughout scripture that are used to refer to God. But we tend to use them in so many other casual ways Then once we need that word to refer to God, it's hard for us to feel any weight behind it because we've used it in so many other ways. For instance, it really is hard to speak about the holiness of God and God is holy when we've spent our life referring to cows as holy. It's hard to talk about the awesomeness of God, which that is a word used specifically to talk about the Lord throughout scripture that God is awesome when last night the pizza we had was also awesome. It's hard to feel the significance of the blessing of God. Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and trace the significance of blessing from Genesis 12 all the way to the end that God is a God of blessing. And one of the primary ways that God ministers to us is he blesses us through Jesus Christ when we live in a culture in which everything seems to be blessed. One of the words we use that way is also the word glory. Now, glory is distinct in that it doesn't always refer to God. Sometimes we use the word glory to refer to a renown or an honor because of some achievement, some honor that has been received because of achievement. That's why many of you gathered together last night and sang glory, 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 old Georgia. I'm not going to make you feel guilty for that either. Because what we're saying there is there is some renown and achievement that exists in our Georgia fight song. And so we say, you know, renown and honor to glory, be, I mean, to, uh, to Georgia because of our accomplishments. And so that's fine. But if we're not careful, we will lose the weight of that word and the significance of it. 
Because when the Bible talks about the glory of God, what it means is this. The visible manifestation of God's greatness. That's glory. Glory, that word that's very, very difficult to describe, can really best be described as the visible manifestation of God's greatness. So God, who desires to make his glory known, reveals himself by showing his holiness and his beauty and his greatness and his splendor and his mercy and his kindness and his wrath. That's glory. Glory is when when God is seen. Glory is about revelation. It's about God wanting to be known and manifesting his character and greatness. To use words a little more familiar to Prince that I hope are becoming more and more familiar. They're key words for us. You could also talk about glory as manifest presence. Not just God everywhere, which he is, but God present, God real. One of our prayers every Sunday morning at Prince is that we would experience the manifest presence of God. We want God to be seen and known and to be real among us. That's glory. Glory is God making his greatness and beauty known. This is why Psalm 19 says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. What does that mean? It means that creation is one of God's self-portraits. God, who wants to make his greatness and beauty known, has done so through creation. And so the reason we see the power and the weight and the beauty of creation, the creativity is creation, is because all of it comes from God. And God has created the heavens that we might see them and know him. That's glory. That's glory. It's why in Exodus chapter 14, the Bible says that God will get glory over Pharaoh. What does that mean? Is that Pharaoh is trying to flex his muscles and show his greatness, but God will display his greatness through the plagues and through the Passover and through the parting of the sea and the deliverance of his people. So God gets greater glory because he has greater power. And so in the whole story of the Exodus, you have God displaying power and grace and kindness and faithfulness. That's glory. You see it in Exodus chapter 40, when the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle and there is smoke and there is thunder and there is fire and all of the people who see it are overwhelmed by something. What are they overwhelmed by? Glory. Like they feel it in a moment. They are captured by the glory. Same thing happens in 2 Chronicles 17 when Solomon dedicates the temple. What happens? The fire consumes the offering. The smoke is there and no one is the same after they see the glory. They bow before the Lord. They honor the Lord because of the glory. It's what happened in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah gets a vision of the Lord and he is seated on his throne and the train of his robe fills the entire temple. And it is there where the seraphim begin to sing and they sing, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then it says that the foundation of the entire temple begins to shake. So there's like an earthquake that is happening. Everything is shaking. And once again, there is smoke and there is fire. You know what that is? That's glory. And Isaiah was never the same after he saw the glory, the visible manifestation of God's power. And the reason glory exists is because glory is intended to capture your heart. The goal of glory is for you to be changed. The goal of glory is that you would see God in a way you haven't seen him before, and in seeing him that way, nothing else would ever satisfy your heart but God because you have seen his greater glory. 
that you would change your allegiance from seeing in the Old Testament the glory of Pharaoh to the glory of God, and you would see that the glory of God is greater in every way, infinitely greater, and so now all of a sudden your allegiance is only to the Lord. And all of the things in the world that had so much beauty to you may still be beautiful because they're a reflection of the beauty of God, but they will pale in comparison to now the way in which you see God's own beauty. That's glory. You say, well, why are we getting a lesson on glory this morning? Because in John chapter one, John tells us that the fullness of the glory of God, all of the beauty, all of the majesty, all of the splendor, all of the power is all found in Jesus Christ. All the glory in Christ. Look at the way he says that. I want to read the whole prologue for us this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. It says this, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. In other words, they did not see the glory. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here's our text for today. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so John's goal, we know from John 20, is that we would read this and believe, and by believing, have life in his name. So God wants to make us into new creations. He wants to make us something new. But the only way that we will ever go to Jesus for life is if we believe that Jesus has the ability to give life. So hence John 1, 1 through 5. The creator of life wants to recreate you. The one who gave you eyes wants to give you new eyes to be able to see the glory of God. The one who gave you physical life wants to give you spiritual life. He wants to give you this life that is not of the will of man and not of blood, but from God. And he cannot get you to go to Jesus for life unless you believe Jesus has life. So he starts with God as creator. But then in our text for today, he moves to Jesus, not only as creator, but Jesus as the visible manifestation of God's glory. Jesus is now the way in which God is making himself known. That's the whole point of the last verse, verse 18. No one has ever seen God at any time. But Jesus has made him known. If you want to see the glory of God, you look to Jesus. Jesus has the fullness of the glory of God. And the reason 
He wants us to understand Jesus as creator and Jesus as the word, the visible manifestation of the glory of God is because he not only wants us to find life in Jesus, listen to me, he wants our hearts to be completely captured by the glory of Jesus. He wants us to never be the same as we continue to look at Jesus over and over. He wants to say, if you will continue to behold him, if you will continue to look at him, if you will continue to see him, you will see in him greater glory than you have ever seen before. And the most beautiful thing that you have ever seen in nature that captured your heart and you took picture after picture after picture of will pale in comparison to the beauty you begin to see in Jesus. That's the goal. So the question is, what does is, what is John reveal to us about Jesus and the glory of God? I want to give you three things this morning. The first one is this. In Jesus, God's glory becomes flesh. In Jesus, God's glory becomes flesh. The reason I read all of verses 1 through 18 is because we haven't seen the word since verse 1. And that was a couple of weeks ago. And so it takes us back to verse 1 and reminds us of the word. The word being Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. Verse 18. God has never communicated himself more clearly than has communicated himself in Jesus. But it's more than that. It is also a reference to Jesus who is the eternally existing one. He was never created. He is actually the agent of creation. That everything that has ever been created came from Jesus. It was the power of the word of Jesus that spoke creation into existence. He is the eternally existing one. He was with God, meaning he's the second person of the Trinity. And he was God, meaning he is fully God. And so we take this idea of the word and we think about Jesus as the revelation of God. And we think about the fact that all of the beauty of creation came from the word of Jesus. And so all of that points back to Jesus. And it says the word, this eternally existing God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity, the agent of creation meaning the one with all of the power and all of the magnificence and all of the glory of the universe, that word, here it is, became flesh. John could have used a lot of words there. He could have said became a man or became a body or took on a body or became humanity, but he didn't say that. He chose a very specific word that is the crudest possible word you could ever use for flesh. And the reason is, is because he wants us to see the word in all of his pre-existent glory, never created, Colossians 1, sustaining everything by the power of his word. So he not only created it by his word, the reason we're held together and the word is not falling apart is because Jesus is keeping it together. And so all of that power and all of that magnificence and all of that glory has now taken on human flesh. And the reason he uses that word flesh is he wants us to see all of that glory now comes with all of the pains and the fragility and the struggles and the limitations and the temptations of flesh. The flesh is weak. The flesh is broken. The flesh has pain. The flesh suffers. I have two band-aids on my finger right now because the flesh is weak. It's the flesh and he wants us to see the fullness of all the glory, the word put on flesh. Not referring to the idea of sinful flesh like Paul often refers to, but he just took on our flesh with all of its weaknesses and all of the pain and all of the temptation. And the reason he took on flesh is because he wanted to next dwell among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is not the first time God has dwelt among his people. 
He dwelt among his people in the garden. And you'll see an exact picture of that at the very end of the Bible where God is taking us. But he has also dwelled with his people throughout the Old Testament. And the way he did is through a tabernacle or a temple. And so the tabernacle, Exodus 33 and 34, is this picture of God's desire to be with his people. God wants people to see his glory. And so God manifests himself and God wants to dwell among his people. You know, we were created for God's presence. We exist for God's presence. We're only satisfied in God's presence and we will only be fully satisfied until we're fully in his presence. It is in his presence, Psalm 16, it's fullness of joy. We exist for his presence. And so God takes a tabernacle and, and he puts his presence in us, this rough built temporary tabernacle and he puts his presence in there. And the people see it and they see the smoke and they see the fire and they see the glory of God in the tabernacle and they know that it's a holy place because they see the manifestations of God's greatness. They see all of the evidences that God has come there. And so this just tent, which could be any tent, is now not any tent because it houses the very presence of God. And so John, wanting us to get that, uses the exact same word here when he says, Jesus came to dwell among us. What he's saying is Jesus came to tabernacle among us. Meaning that flesh is flesh and we all have flesh, but Jesus' flesh is different. It is fully flesh because he's fully human, but it houses the glory of God. It houses the glory of God. And you can see a thousand tents and all of the tents are the same, but one of them has the glory of God in it. You can see a thousand humans, but one of them has the glory of God in it. What Jesus is saying is, is what John is saying is Jesus is the one. He is housing the very glory of God. It is taken on flesh and come to dwell among us. But it's different. Because although everyone knew the glory was there in that tent, only a few really experienced it. Moses, it says, Nexus 33, 11, one of my favorite verses. It says, Moses met with God face to face. Like a friend meets with a friend. I love that. I long for that. But only Moses. No one else could do that. No one else could, could, could come that close. And so all the way throughout the history of God's people, whether it be the tabernacle or the ultimate temple that Solomon built, no one could come that close. No one could go directly into the glory. They could see the glory from afar, but they couldn't enter in. And so now what John is saying is all of that glory that was unapproachable, all of that glory that we could see from a distance but couldn't get near, all of the glory that Moses saw when he met with God as a friend is now all the glory that has been put in flesh. And now it's not just Moses that sees God as a friend. Now God has become a friend of sinners. And now he walks among us and he laughs among us and he talks and he eats and we sit with him and we touch him because all of that glory has now become flesh. The fullness of God, the manifestation of his greatness and it did not come in a fire and it did not come in a cloud and it did not thunder every time Jesus walked into the room but it was no less the fullness of the glory of God in flesh. And so in Jesus, God's glory becomes flesh. Second thing is this. In Jesus, God's glory becomes visible. It becomes visible. It didn't just come to meet with us, to be in the flesh. It came so that we might see it. Look at what it says. And we have seen his glory. Now that is, that's an unbelievable phrase. The glory of God put in human flesh. And what John is saying is, we've seen it. I saw it. He's bearing witness here. 
Now, this word we is important because it's going to come back at the end. The we is a reference to those who have received Jesus. Going back to verse 12. To those who've received him, he gave the right to become children of God. And we know that this refers only to those who have experienced the miracle of new birth because the only ones who have the ability to actually look beyond the flesh and see the glory are those, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, whose eyes have been opened by the power of the Holy Spirit so they can see the glory. Because most people just saw another guy with flesh and did not see the glory. Isn't this what he told us last week's text? Most people just walked by him. They didn't see him. They didn't notice him. He was just another guy. But he wasn't just another guy. He was housing the glory of God. But the miracle that God has to work is that he opens your eyes so now Jesus is no longer a man. Jesus is the glory of God and the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life. And he says, we've, we've seen it. That word seen is a, is a precursor to our word theater. It means the glory of God on full display. That if God wants to put his, his glory out so everyone can see it, that Jesus, you could say, is the theater of God's glory. That everywhere Jesus goes, he is this picture of the glory of God. And it says, it is the glory, look at what it says. The glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That phrase, the only son from the father, is there to emphasize it wasn't a second kind of glory. It, it wasn't just a part of God's glory. No, this is the glory of the one and only son. The second person of the Trinity who existed before creation. This is his glory. The glory is of the only one who has come from the father. What does that mean? He is the very essence of the father. And so John just adds that in there so you would know that this is the fullness of the glory that only God possesses. The glory of the one and only Son, the agent of creation. Glory is a visible display of God's beauty and magnificence. A visible display of God's kindness and love. And so my question is this. Like I get this. But how do you see the magnificent beauty of God's glory in Jesus? Because in the same way, it was housed in a tent. Now it's housed in flesh and most people did not see it. And so how do we see it? And one of the things we know from Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2 is that Jesus had no form and no beauty and no majesty that we would notice. You know those old etchings and drawings of Jesus that always have a halo over his head? I think the reason they do this is so they can identify Jesus. And, and I don't know if they believe that he had a halo or not, but they're trying to communicate that there's a bunch of guys in the room at the Lord's table, but there's one who's God, and so we'll put a halo over his head. But you know that Jesus didn't have a halo. He didn't walk around with a halo. And if you think about all of the glory of God and all of the thunder and all of the lightning and all of the smoke and all of the brightness the shining brightness of God's glory that made us crumble and fall to our knees is now housed in a person. Well, how do you see it? Because Jesus did not come with fire or smoke or thunder. Here it is. And it's even more beautiful than the fire and the smoke and the thunder. We see the fullness of the glory of God in the character of Jesus. In his words and in his works. The way in which God manifests his beauty is through the work of Jesus Christ. And I know that because look at what it says next. He is full of grace and truth. He is full of grace and truth. And the manifestation of his beauty is seen in the manifestation of grace and truth. 
Now, I want you to understand grace and truth well. Because what John is doing is taking us back unquestionably to Exodus 33 and 34. All of this, he wants us to get this picture of Jesus and his, I mean, God and his presence in the, in the tabernacle. And so all of his language is from there. One of the things that happens in Exodus 33 is that Moses says in verse 18, please show me your glory. And God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim you my name. So he's equating his glory with his goodness. And then in Exodus 34, it says this, listen, 34 verse six. So the Lord passed before him, just like he said he would. And the Lord proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Exodus 34 verse 6 gives us the key to grace and truth. The place in which John gets grace and truth is from two words in Exodus 34 that will then be repeated over and over and over. And it is this, our God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's grace and truth. That's where John gets it. You say, where does God, John come up with grace and truth? Well, because he was studying Exodus 33 and 34 when he wrote John 1. And he says, listen, if you want to know what grace and truth it is this, it is a God who is abounding in faithfulness. He does what is right always. He judges. He brings his wrath. He always does what is right. He is holy and righteous, but he is abounding to his people with loving kindness. That's grace and truth. And then you have this idea of of loving kindness and faithfulness all throughout scripture. And what John is now saying, particularly to those who know the word of God, that God over and over in scripture is showing that he does bring justice and he does bring wrath. But our God to his people is just gives grace and grace and grace and mercy. This never ending, never stopping, always and forever love of God. This kindness that he displays generation after generation when his people fail time and time again. They're a picture of us. We just fail time and time again with good intentions. So here's what John is saying. All of that steadfast love and all of that faithfulness is now fully in the person of Jesus Christ. There has never been more love. There has never been more faithfulness than there is in Jesus because all that we've ever longed for, the justice, the righteousness, the holiness of God, his loving kindness is all now in Jesus Christ and we see it in his character. We see it in what he does. We don't see the glory and the smoke and the fire, but we see it in the kindness of his eyes. We see it in his mercy. We see it in his goodness. We see it in him noticing things that no one else notices and seeing and touching people no one else will see and touch. We see it in John chapter two when he turns water into wine. It tells us in John two verse 11 that this was the first time that Jesus manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. It wasn't just the glory of Jesus' power to change water into wine. It was the glory of Jesus noticing in that moment what was going on. It was his awareness and his empathy and his kindness and an action toward an embarrassed host who was about to run out of wine. The power is one thing. Much more than the power this story exists to say Jesus is so aware of what's going on that he wants to save this family from embarrassment. And so he goes behind the scenes and turns water into wine. If it was just about power, he would have done it in front of everybody, but he didn't. And what we see is a little glimpse of the glory of God and God who is so kind and so aware of what's going on in someone's heart. And he comes and he meets a need. 
We see it in the woman at the well who is filled with so much shame, but with just a moment having met Jesus, she saw in Jesus more than just flesh. She saw love and kindness and grace and compassion, and all of her shame was wiped away because she saw the glory of God in Jesus. We see it when Jesus sees a multitude of invalids and he notices one that has been sitting there for 38 years because he was trying to get in the water that would heal him. But he says, for 38 years, no one has ever picked me up and take me into the water. And for some reason, Jesus picks him and Jesus goes right to him and he simply says, be healed. That's the glory of God. We see it when he feeds the 5,000. We seize it in the woman who was caught in adultery. We see it over and over in the man that was born blind. And in everything Jesus did on every page, we see the magnificent beauty of God in the kindness and love of Jesus. The place we see it most is in his death, burial, and resurrection. We see it in the garden when Jesus prays until he sweats blood. We see it in saying, Father, if there's any way that this could pass for me, please let it. And the Father says, no, this is the only way to redeem my people. And so Jesus submits to the will of the Father and he goes to the cross and we see it while he does not try to defend himself, but he is led like a lamb to the slaughter and he is crucified up on a cross. And we see it in his burial and we see it in the mocking of everyone that stood there and Jesus said nothing. And we see it in the fact that in one moment, all of the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus. Why? Because God is a God of truth and grace and something has to be done with the wrath of God for your sins. So the holiness and the wrath of justice poured out upon Jesus Christ, forsaken by the Father. Why? So that we would not get the wrath, but the loving kindness. (laughs) So that we would just get the loving kindness. And all of the glory of God displayed on the cross, all of the beauty of God's character, all of his wrath and justice and holiness, but the abundance of grace and loving kindness displayed in the work of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus was doing. He was displaying the beauty of God's character. He was making glory visible. And so what they said is that we have, we have seen his glory. We saw it. We saw it on the cross. We saw it with the woman at the well. We saw it at the wedding. We have seen it. And so Jesus comes as we sing this morning like a lion and a lamb. He is the lion, the defender of the holiness and justice and wrath of God. But he is also the lamb who was slain. He's the visible manifestation of God's beauty and character and greatness. And so in Jesus, God's glory becomes flesh. In Jesus, God's glory becomes visible. But let me tell you the last one. In Jesus, God's glory becomes personal. In Jesus, God's glory becomes personal. Verse 15 exists so that John would make sure we understand that the one we're talking about was born after him, but existed before him. And then he says in verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received, circle that, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is the Father's side. He has made him known. From his fullness, what does that mean? Well, all of the glory is in Christ. Christ is the fullness of God. And so out of his fullness, what does that mean? The fullness of his love, the fullness of his kindness, the fullness of his compassion. He is full because he is the fullness of the glory of God. Out of all of the fullness of God dwelling in this flesh, what happens to us? Those who know him receive grace upon grace, abundance grace. Again, when he says, out of his fullness, we have all received, is referring to the ones who have received Jesus Christ. So to receive Jesus Christ is now to receive the fullness of his grace. 
Everyone who comes to him gets from him an overabundance of grace, a never-ending supply of grace. And it's not just the grace that saves you, it's the grace that sustains you. It's the grace that's good enough for today and for every sin you've ever committed and every heartache you're experiencing and every sin that you're struggling with. There's sufficient grace for that. There is power for that. There is forgiveness for all of those things. And he could have said, he's come to give us truth upon truth, but he doesn't. 55 times in the gospel of John, truth is used. Truth is one of the key themes, but he doesn't say what we get out of him is truth and truth. He says what we get is grace and grace and grace and grace. And so we see the fullness of the truth in Jesus Christ. And as we see that truth and as we walk in him and come to know him, then what he says to you is every moment of the rest of your life, what you get from Jesus is just grace and grace and grace. I can't help but to think about my your friend and mentor Barry St. Clair sitting right over here who uh, 10 years ago when my wife was diagnosed with stage four cancer, I'm standing in my office and my cell phone rings. I hadn't talked to you forever, Barry. His wife had passed away from cancer and the only verse he gave me was this, out of his fullness, we all receive grace upon grace. In other words, what he said is this, there's sufficient grace for this and there'll be sufficient grace tomorrow for whatever else comes. If she makes it, there's grace. If she doesn't make it, there's grace. There's just grace and grace and grace. You say, how do I see the beauty of Jesus? You see it in the fact that there is an overabundance of grace every moment of the day. This is life with Jesus. It's just a series of undeserved and unrelenting favor and kindness. And verse 17 says the law could not have done that. Verse 18, only Jesus could have done that. It's exactly what he does. And the goal is this. The goal is that you might see the beauty of the character of God in Jesus and that it might capture your heart. That's the goal. The goal is that you would not ever be satisfied with anything other than the glory of Jesus Christ. That you would see the depth of your sin and you would see the crucified Savior and you would see that you are fully welcomed into the family of God, can run as fast as you can into the arms of God. Why? Because of what Christ did. And you will see the grace that you get. You will sin so much and you will say, certainly there couldn't be more grace. And you wake up the next morning and you remember his mercies are new every morning. Why? Because there's more grace than you will ever have sin. And there's more grace than you will ever have struggle. There's more grace than you will ever have pain. And when you begin to understand that and see it and experience it, what happens is this. You start to get a little glimpse of the glory of God. Our vision here at Prince is that we would raise up a generation of people passionate about experiencing, enjoying, and expanding God's presence. But that's the same as, as glory. We want you to experience glory. We want you to get close to Jesus and near to Jesus and know what it's like to have your sins covered. We want you to know what it's like to find sufficiency in him. We want you to get close and personal with Jesus. We want you to enjoy him. What that means is we want you to see so much of his faithfulness and his kindness and his love and his grace that you would be able to rest in it. You're no longer striving to make God happy with you. That's been done through the cross of Jesus Christ that you would be able to rest. And so the result is that you sing and you dance and you laugh and you enjoy friends and family. Why? Because you're right with God through Jesus. And the sufficiency of Jesus would take the burdens away. And you would start enjoying God. Because he's not a burden. He came to take away the burden. And you would expand his presence. That you would speak the truth. But in speaking the truth, listen to me. That what you would do is that critical, con condemning spirit would go away. And what people would receive from you is just grace upon grace upon grace. Your wife would get grace and grace. And your husband would get grace and grace. And your kids get grace. And your coworkers get grace. And everyone you meet gets grace. Why? Because that's what you get an abundance of from Jesus. 
And that's what you give an abundance of. It's just grace and more grace. You were created to be captured by the glory of God. You were created for Jesus. And nothing else will ever satisfy you but Jesus. So the first thing that must happen is God must open your eyes by his power to see his glory. If he has not done that, would you just pray today? God, open my eyes. I want to see the glory. Jesus has just been a man to me. He's been something else. I'm not captured by the glory of Jesus. Ask him to do that for you. And then you must behold him. You must be still and sit and come to the word of God and say, I want to see Jesus and I want to know Jesus. You've got to make this the priority of your life that everything else would be small and compared to the glory of Jesus Christ. But you have to go after Jesus day after day that you might be captured by the beauty of God in Christ. May that be the story of those who come to Prince. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.